As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. This is Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. We're moving from the countryside into the medieval cities. And those cities had a lot of the same things that ours do today. Educational systems, governing bodies, the exchange of goods and services, and some really over-the-top cathedrals. I'll let Chris take it from here. Now we should say right off that more people in the Middle Ages are still living in the countryside than in the cities. In fact, it's not until about 1750 that more people in Europe live in cities than in rural areas. It's not until 1850 in the United States that more people live in cities than in rural areas. Nevertheless, people are living in cities at a higher rate than they had been for about 500 years. In fact, by about 1100 in medieval Europe, you have cities that have not been seen in number and size since the Roman Empire, and they're bigger now than they were then. Again, we said when we talked about the agricultural revolution that the key was the agricultural revolution's increased production of food because of particular technologies so that you have a surplus and not a subsistence economy, and the people in the cities can buy food, prepared food uh, in terms of meals that are ready to eat already, or prepared food in terms of um, milk that's already been separated, uh, created into cheese, or um, animals that have already been slaughtered into um, portions to be cooked. 
most of the population of cities are free. If you're in a city, you are either born free or you're a serf who's escaped the countryside. Now, this got a little tricky because the cities, of course, want people to populate them. They need to give incentives. And city charters said that if, you, if you're a serf and you live in a city for a year and a day and you're unclaimed, you're free. Now, think about this. If you're a runaway serf and you come into a city, the last thing you want to do is record your name and a date because if your lord comes in looking for you or he sends his steward or bailiff in, there's a place to look. So there were all sorts of backroom deals and underground, under-the-table lists of people so that they could claim a year and a day. And the cities encouraged this kind of movement. Back on the farm, some of the stewards and the bailiffs uh, sweetened the pot for serfs so they wouldn't leave, but plenty did. Now, when we talk about cities, we think of New York. So what kind of size are we talking about in the Middle Ages? Well, you had about... 15 or 20 cities that would have had 25,000 people. That's a good size. Remember, we, you know, we'd have some version of running water. We really don't quite have flush toilets. You've got to get refuse out of the city. You've got to keep law and order, crime and punishment. 25,000 is a pretty good number. And let's look at some, you know, a couple of sites in all the major areas. Barcelona had 25,000. Valencia, Toulouse. Bordeaux, in Germany, Cologne, and Nuremberg. Then you had some which were larger. London, Bruges, and Ghent all had 40,000. Now, if you think of where London and Bruges and Ghent are, right, they're on either side of the English Channel, and in fact, those three cities were in close relationship with each other because people would produce wool in the English countryside, bring it to London, ship it uh, out the Thames, across the English Channel to Bruges and Ghent. Bruges and Ghent were textile cities where the wool was finished into clothing and that clothing was either shipped back to England or further into the continent. So it makes sense that those three cities were about the same size. Then you've got some pretty good-sized cities, mostly in Italy because remember Italy jutting into the Mediterranean, connecting the Western Mediterranean to the Eastern Mediterranean are trading cities. And trading cities, port cities, are always exciting places. They're busy places. So a city with about 75 to 100,000 people, ancient Athens in the 400s, the high point of ancient Greek history, had 100,000 people. And it was a polis where, in Italy, they're fascinated with Greek culture. And so these self governing cities are in no way part of a kingdom of Italy. They don't see themselves as Italian. Even today, you ask somebody from Italy, they would never say they were Italian. They're from Genoa. They're from Pisa. They're from Sicily. They break it down into regionalism. Each of these trading centers saw themselves as a polis. 75 to 100,000 people in Venice, in Florence, in Genoa, And even up in Milan, which is not particularly a trading city by water, but a trading city by land, where all of the products and raw material would move down along roads from the continent and then to Milan, and Milan would ship it to these cities on the ports. How did these cities run themselves? 
the governments of cities were controlled by guilds. When you think of guilds, you think of unions, and that's about right. And remember when we said that feudalism was self-policing and um, had self-government? And we said that when those people moved from the countryside to the city, they brought that tradition with them, that heritage with them, to organize these self-patrolling units. And so there were many guilds of skilled craftsmen, that's essentially what we would call them, and the guilds policed themselves. They set compensation. They set marks of quality and quantity, because they're trying to control quality and they're trying to control costs, and they're trying to control profits, pricing, and education. Now, when you think of guilds, you should think of some names, some words that guilds even use nowadays. If you want to be a plumber or an electrician, you're going to be a journeyman for a time, an apprentice for a time, usually seven years in the ancient system, medieval system, a journeyman, and then a magister, a master. And this is replicated in the American educational system, which came from the European educational system, which reached back to guilds. The first groups of students and teachers in Bologna and Oxford and Cambridge in the 11 and 1200s were guilds of students and teachers. Now, the difference is that we talk about apprentice, journeyman, master, and now in the educational system, we have a bachelor student would be the apprentice. The journeyman would be the master. And then the doctorate um, would be the professor, if you will. So the word master gets played with there. But look at a graduation ceremony. The bachelors have the shortest sleeves, the masters have the longest sleeves, and the people in the doctoral robes have the cool outfits with the floppy hats and the three stripes on their sleeves. And there would be clothing in the medieval guilds for the apprentice, the journeyman, and the master as well. And these guilds would control the political life of the city, the economic life of the city, the cultural life. They would sponsor festivals and feasts. They would compete with each other to do so. They also took care of their own when things went wrong, what we would call social welfare. So if a man lost his livelihood, lost his life, his widow would be cared for, his uh, children would be cared for as orphans, but if he lost his livelihood, he lost a hand or an arm, a part of his body, was disabled permanently, they had the equivalent of workmen's compensation. So much of your paycheck, the version of their paycheck, would go in each week or each month to a common fund, and that the masters would put the common fund money, share it among these families of people who could no longer work. Women could often have their own guilds if they had a husband the husband was the guild's member. But if the husband died, they often could be a, a member of a guild on their own. There were certain guilds, though, where women could represent themselves, be masters on their own, even if their husband was alive. And these were women-only guilds. And an example is in Paris, where there were five guilds controlling the silk industry, the making of silk, the trading of silk, the finishing of silk, all these different steps in the process, there were five guilds, women only. So again, as in the countryside, women are having more power than we might think. However, the men wouldn't let them get political power. Sorry, ladies. And so when we talk about the people who ran the government of the cities, we call them the bourgeoisie or the burghers, the people who lived in the burg or the borough, 
These were the men of the town. And they were moving from being subjects of a lord, the vassal, the feudal system, to citizens. And what you have is an emerging middle class. This is an important moment in the history of government. Now, when we talk about the Roman Empire, we say, weren't they citizens? The Roman imperial system had citizens, but they were citizens under an emperor. That's different than Roman citizens in the Republic. There was a Roman Republic for about 500 years from 509 BC or BCE to about the time that Julius Caesar is assassinated in 44 BC. That was a Republic, a self regulating group of people and government. It is the model of our own government because Americans were trying to overthrow an emperor, George III, in Parliament. And so this notion of medieval city dwellers as bourgeoisie, as citizens, is very important for the development of American government and American political theory as well. So cities are centers of trade, they're centers of manufacturing, they're centers of consumption. We'll take a quick break here, but when we come back, Chris breaks down trade in the medieval ages. Did you know traveler's checks were a thing back then? Plus, the pride a craftsman took in creating a gargoyle. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, 
what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Let's talk about trade. Trade talks about money and goods, of course. But what's interesting, and I want to look at this in a different way, looking not at caricatures or preconceptions, but something more subtle and sophisticated, trade was an opportunity for interreligious interaction. Now, notice I didn't say interreligious dialogue, interreligious interaction. People don't have to like each other in order to do business with each other. I think we can all agree that it works if we like each other, but there are all sorts of business. They say politics makes strange bedfellows, economics and business makes even stranger bedfellows. Trade is controlled by capital. If you're dealing with a city economy and government, you're dealing with money and sales, you're not dealing with a barter system, a difference from the countryside. So rents, which had been paid in goods or services we saw in the countryside, here are paid in money. And trade has to go across land and sea. Now, then and now, it is cheaper and faster to transport your goods along water. To jump ahead hundreds of years, One of the reasons why the Industrial Revolution happens in England before it happens anywhere else in the 16 and the 1700s is that there is no one spot in England that is more than 70 miles from a body of water, a sea or a canal or a river. So it's cheap to get your goods to the water and it's cheaper then to move your goods and faster along the water. The people who are transporting the goods are Muslim ship captains. Italians and Muslims are in close connection because the Roman lake, that's what the Mediterranean was called under the Roman Empire, had now become Muhammad's lake, as they referred to it themselves. And so Muslim ship captains were really good. Now, an example of this, to again, jump forward in time, is if you've ever seen Othello, Shakespeare's play, even though that's written around 1600, the ship captain in that, Othello, the Moor. And so he is an example of one of these Muslim ship captains. So what you have here now in the cities running the economy is a merchant class. They're buying and selling. They're not manufacturing. Guilds manufacture goods. They're very diversified. They're very powerful. But the most powerful people are the merchants. They're the middlemen between the producer and the purchaser. They're the ones doing the markup. And so in order to do all of this financing, they need what we call credit instruments. Now, I'm going to use some words that you might find very modern. They are, in fact, very medieval. Loans, checks, traveler's checks. Are you ready for this? Insurance premiums, what's called a C loan, letters of credit or letters of exchange. There's no ATM in the Middle Ages. 
I'm not quite sure anybody nowadays uses traveler's checks anymore, but the reason you used to use traveler's checks, for those of you of a certain age will remember Carl Malden telling you not to leave home without them for American Express, and they had to be American Express. Um, those traveler's checks acted as money, but they weren't money. Well, you can't move trunks of coins in this period of time, and, and money is, is coins. It's not paper money, really. And so in order to run this economy, to get all this stuff going, what you need to do are create documents where you can deposit money in one bank in one city, get a piece of paper, travel hundreds of miles to another bank in another city, and cash in, if you will, that piece of paper. And very often, the people controlling those banks were the Jews, because Jews were allowed to, to make money on money. That is, they could charge interest on loans. Christians could not do this. This was called usury. So because of this, Jews began to get involved in financing more than manufacturing the Merchant of Venice, Shylock in the Merchant of Venice, a very unfortunate example of the rampant anti-Semitism that was going on at that period of time. Again, though Shakespeare's writing in 1600, he's reflecting um, an earlier time. And so this is where you get the development of these very famous families that exist into the modern period, the Fuggers and the Rothschilds, all across Europe. So you have an at-home lender who's Jewish. He's called a commenda. He gives you a loan or a credit instrument or a traveler's check. You travel basically to either another Jew or his relative who is another Jew, and that's that distant bank, and that's how you do business. What does a city look like? If you've ever been to a city, you can always tell who the tourists are. They're looking up. Because if you've been from a small city or never been to a city, the first thing you notice is the height of the buildings. Then and now. What does the Gothic city look like? Now, this word Gothic is a little bit controversial because it, you know, nowadays we talk about kids wearing white makeup and dressed all in black and they're goths. Or we talk about the goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths as barbarians, and we've already knocked down that phrase um, earlier. What about this Gothic city? Well, goth is just a word. It refers to one of those tribes that married Roman imperial structures with their own tribal structures and made kind of this hybrid sort of culture that we call Gothic. And that hybrid culture actually starts in ancient Greece and Rome, part of a renaissance. And the fundamental structure in the Roman world was the basilica. Now, when I say basilica to you, you think of a Catholic church, but a basilica was a judgment hall in ancient Rome. And at the end of the judgment hall sat the judge, who was the provincial governor, or if you're in Rome, the emperor himself. You've got to walk down this long aisle. And this long aisle is called a nave. And at the front is kind of a cross aisle, which is called an apse. And if the building is very high, it lets a little light in, and that kind of atrium, if you will, is called a clerestory. This fundamental structure becomes the first Christian basilicas because when the Christians come along, they're not going to knock that building down. That's stupid. What they're going to do is convert that building, if you will, and that's why the altar is at the front and the bishop's chair, um, etc. 
And so in the aftermath of Rome's transformation, not fall, remember, you have these buildings that are like Roman buildings, Roman-ish, or to use the phrase, Romanesque. And this is the style of building. Now, some people say there's an artificial distinction between Romanesque and Gothic. And I think what you can do is, if you look, take a good art history class, what you'll see is that Romanesque over time becomes Gothic. So if you're looking at a building from 1050 and 1150, Uh, which is which, but if you're looking at a building from 550 and 1350, yeah, you're going to see a big difference. And the big difference is that the Romanesque building is not as tall, it's heavy, its walls are very thick, its windows are very small, because the weight of the building is such that they can't go high. And so the innovations become an in how do you distribute the weight. And you distribute the weight using something called vaulted ceilings. And these vaults are called barrel vaults or groin vaults. And to use an example, think of a baseball game. So here's a player. He's rounding third. He's coming home. The catcher has the ball. The catcher's not going to stand straight up to receive getting hit by this guy coming. What's he going to do? He's going to spread his leg. He's going to crouch down. He's going to lower his center of gravity to receive that weight. And because of that, he can receive more weight at greater speed. That's what a vault does. And so it allows you to kind of make the walls a little thinner. It allows you to build your uh, basilica a little higher. And you can open up your windows a little bit. And so the facades can now be decorated because the facade doesn't have to carry so much weight. The vault is carrying the weight, and you can start to decorate the facade as well. And so this transition is occurring 1,000, 1,100, around there, 1,200, and we're moving toward the Gothic style. Now, when you think of the buildings, when you go on those tours, when you uh, look in your own communities and you see Gothic or Neo-Gothic basilicas and cathedrals, You'll see that style not just in church buildings, but in secular buildings as well. So a town hall, or a guild hall, or a castle, or a university, or even a residence is going to start to look like this very distinctive Gothic style. And so what is that Gothic style? Very elaborate arches. One of the most interesting things to do when you go on these tours is to lay on the ground, or to look up in some of the best churches allow you to look up either with binoculars or they have uh, mirrors on the ground uh, or on pivots and you can look up at the ceiling and they're magnified and you can see how elaborate these um, vaults are. Higher and higher, more and more elaborate. And these arches which begin to cross each other and because you do that, they soar up. Hey listen, you walk into a Gothic cathedral, you look one place and you look one place only. Up. The architecture makes you look up form and function being married because you're in a church building. You're supposed to be raising your eyes from the earth to spiritual matters, from this age into the next age. And so the next big development, the development of the Gothic cathedral, are these things called flying buttresses. You take your, arch, your arches and you put them outside. And what these things is a scaffold or a skeleton outside, an exoskeleton, and it takes the pressure of those walls outward. And because it does that, the walls can get even thinner, and they can go even higher, and the windows can way open up because the windows aren't doing any work for you. The walls aren't doing any work for you. The roof can now be peaked. And so the weight-bearing architectural element is the flying buttress. The impact on light 
and windows, on exteriors and facades, is amazing. And all of that stuff is done by the guilds. The people designing, what we would call architects and engineers, the people doing the scaffolding, the people cutting the wood and finishing it, the people cutting the stone from afar and finishing it near, the people building the pulleys, the people making the glass, the people staining the glass, the people installing the glass, the people later on painting frescoes, the people making the vestments, the people making the vessels, those are all guilds. When a bishop says, we're going to build a cathedral, everybody goes crazy because everybody has a job for a hundred years. It fuels the economy. It becomes the center of the town to the point where you have to get water away from the roof and you don't want the water to spill on the people down below, so you put a gargoyle up there. And you take that gargoyle and you make him some fantastic figure, some really silly looking figure, caricaturish figure. He's going to be 300 feet in the air. Why would you possibly make it so special if nobody's going to see it? Because you made it, because you're a craftsman, because you have pride, and you believe that that is your contribution to the creation of this cathedral that will last forever. A tremendous amount of what we say, you know, people say, nobody has craftsmanship anymore. Nobody has pride anymore. The people in the Middle Ages did. And so it's an economic engine when this happens. Now one of the questions is, is could people really see that stained glass way up there? It looks like a person, and all those prophets look alike. You always see a woman up there, and somebody invariably says, must be Mary. It's a Catholic church, it must be Mary. Could people read those stained glass windows? You often hear that this was for an illiterate population. The answer is probably not, but a preacher could make reference to it, and the light that came in in different colors would have had an impact. So what we begin to see is that we have economics, we have religion coming together, and it's all fueled by a bishop who sits under a papacy. So we need to next look at what was the papacy like in the Middle Ages. Thank you for listening to another episode of Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. Next time, feudalism and feuding popes. Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. 
and we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.